Hello, and welcome to Race and Crime in America. I am your host, Angie Tamayo, and today's topic will be the school-to-prison pipeline. The school-to-prison pipeline is a national trend where children are being swept from the educational to the criminal justice system. In other words, it is a process of criminalizing youth that is carried out by disciplinary policies within schools that put students into contact with law enforcement. Once students are put into contact with law enforcement, even if it's for disciplinary reasons, many are then pushed out of the educational environment and into the juvenile and criminal justice system. This disproportionately affects schools that serve communities of color. In order to better understand this topic, we will break down the complexities behind the issues, explaining how America's education system is unequal for black and brown students. In order to do so, we will be defining key terms such as juvenile justice, disproportionate impact, discipline, and over-policing. To truly understand how America's education system got to this point, we need to backtrack to when it began. We need to look into our past to understand our current situations. According to Paul Butler, author of 100 Years of Race and Crime, in 1910, the most prevalent problem for Black and African American citizens is that of lynchings. The NAACP began as a response to the domestic terrorism of rampant lynchings. Thus, the main race and crime problem identified by the first significant civil rights organization was Black victimization by white criminals. Over the past 100 years, and ever since the beginning of slavery in the United States, It is not as simply as black victimization by white criminals anymore, but now we have systems and institutions that work together to keep people of color, especially black individuals, at the lowest level of importance. Systems such as prisons, housing, education, policing, healthcare, and etc. So back in 1870, Jim Crow laws were placed into practice, and the definition of said laws mandated the segregation of public schools, public places, and public transportation, and the segregation of restrooms, restaurants, and drinking fountains between white and black people. Even though they legally ended in 1964 by the Civil Rights Act, its ripple effects impact every faction of life today. The segregation of public schools is in the Jim Crow era created a barrier of access for black students to gain a rich and equal education. Because schools for black students were under-equipped, underfunded, and had teachers who were underqualified, it kept students from advancing academically and economically in their futures. This built a cycle of undereducated, unemployed, poor communities of color and black communities. There are mirrors of the segregation in urban inner cities, specifically in underfunded school systems that are predominantly made up of minority youth. The major race and crime problems of our time are the mass incarceration of African Americans and the extraordinary disparities between black and whites in the criminal justice system. But mass incarceration does not start in the streets, it starts in the schools. Nearly one in three young black men have a criminal case. He's either locked up on probation or parole or waiting trial. Now let's break down those statistics for the black students. Law enforcement officers target inner city minorities. These primary and secondary schools are affected by the criminalization of education, such as security guards, school resource officers, otherwise known as SROs security cameras, inflexible discipline codes, and subsequent school punishments. 
Most students experience these security and discipline-focused measures throughout their school day as a normative routine. The environment of these institutions are not a warm and welcoming place for students. In fact, the first thing many, many of them see are metal detectors at the front door. All of these conditions are very similar to that of a prison. So we are already treating these students like prisoners when they should be in an environment that helps them grow intellectually, emotionally, and mentally. Let's keep in mind that these school environments are more commonly found in urban, multicultural inner cities and neighborhoods that are often struggling with poverty that affects family structures. family structures and other factors of life is because researcher Kaufman and his colleagues described these factors as possible strains in his work General Strain Theory. General Strain Theory aids in explaining the racial differences in offending and the disproportionate rates that Black and African Americans are put behind bars. Kaufman identifies six strains, economic, family, educational, criminal victimization, discrimination, and community strain. To better understand this general strain theory and its impacts in student life, let's paint a scenario. Before even talking about the educational aspect, let's focus on the familial aspect of a student's life. Let's say because of the disproportionate rate of arresting black Americans, Devin's dad went to prison. Whether he is guilty of a crime or not is not the point in this scenario. Now the structure of Devin's family has shifted. He no longer has a father figure and relies on his mother to be head of household. But let's say Devin's family also consists of three other siblings. So now the single working mother has to work three different jobs to make ends meet, which means that she isn't able to be present in her children's life as much as she would like. Devin as the oldest now has to take care of his three younger siblings, and on top of that, go to school and take care of himself. Let's say that he doesn't make it to school all days of the week because he has to take care of his siblings at home, or there's a family emergency. Now the SROs at his school may think that he's just a bad kid who doesn't care about his education. The school administration may penalize him for not being present every day and call it truancy. So let's pick apart this scenario and analyze what Devin's strains are. His dad is in jail and his mom isn't present all the time because she's working. That's a family strain. The mom is always working because she's the one who has to pay all the bills. That's an economic strain. The school doesn't understand about what Devin's going through and they don't ask. Plus the pressure of having to pass all his classes, that's an educational strain. So all of these factors are going to take a toll on his mental health, on his sleeping patterns, on the way he composes himself when talking to his friends and teachers which for police officers, they may think he is acting out and rebelling and now he's labeled as a bad kid who they are constantly on the lookout for. Keep in mind that police officers don't go through mental health training. They do not take courses in social work or psychology and the only way they interact with these kids in school is by doing their jobs, which means they are policing the students at all times. If Devin acts out one day because he can't take the stress in his personal life, the SROs can arrest him and detain him and then pursue legal action. And that is how a student like Devin goes from being in an educational institution 
to the criminal justice system. Now let's talk about how the school-to-prison pipeline is supported through school policies and SROs. The key policies and practices that created and now maintain the school-to-prison pipeline include zero-tolerance policies that mandate harsh punishments for both minor and major infractions, exclusion of students from schools through punitive suspensions and expulsions, and the presence of police on campus, otherwise known as SROs, school resource officers. These policies and practice became common following a deadly spate of school shootings across the United States in the 1990s. Lawmakers and educators believed they would help to ensure safety on school campuses. However, the evidence has been in favor of the contrary. Having a zero-tolerance policy means that a school has zero tolerance for any kind of misbehavior or violation of school rules, no matter how minor, unintentional, or subjective it may be. In a school with zero-tolerance policy, suspensions and expulsions are normal and common ways of dealing with student misbehavior. Why are zero-tolerance policies a problem? Because the administration is not getting to the root of the problem for that specific student. Looking back at Devin's example, if he acted out and was expelled under the zero-tolerance policy, teachers, school counselors, and the administration would never realize the root of his problems, his family situation. Instead, because of the zero-tolerance policies, he would be completely eradicated from school grounds and be left to fend for his own. The school-to-prison pipeline is also supported by budgetary decisions made by the United States government. From 1987 to 2007, funding for incarceration more than doubled, while funding for higher education was raised by just 21% over a 30-year period, according to PBS. In addition, evidence shows that the school-to-prison pipeline primarily captures and affects black students, which mirrors the overrepresentation of this group in America's prisons and jails. The connection between the school-to-prison pipeline and mass incarceration. Author and researcher John Waldridge and his colleagues wrote, Is the impact of cumulative disadvantage on sentencing greater for Black defendants? Which speaks to the core of overrepresentation of Black population in prisons and jails. His main takeaway is that race group differences affect sentence severity across state and federal courts in the United States. He quotes, The punishment process is a dynamic set of interrelated decision-making points. And for minorities, their sentence severity lies in the earlier decision points, for instance, pretrial detention, bond amounts. But this is also true for students in school. The way students are treated in schools will have a ripple effect on the way they will be treated and viewed in court and their processes in the criminal justice system. The occurred disadvantage for minorities is not new, just like the policing of black and people of color isn't new. A history of racial oppression and segregation in the United States has produced a seemingly pervasive link between race and socioeconomic status. A lot of these kids come from low-income neighborhoods and don't have the money to make bond, thus leaving them in the criminal justice system for longer periods of time. There is much evidence to suggest that convicted black defendants are more likely than convicted whites to be sent to prison. 
An example of this is infamous Brock Turner case. Brock Turner, a white former Stanford swimmer, received a six-month sentence, although he only served three months, for sexually assaulting an, an unconscious woman behind a dumpster on January 18, 2015, when he was 20 years old. The sentencing was so light because, according to the judge, prison would have a severe impact on him and his future. Now let's take Corey Beatty, a black former Vanderbilt University student, also an outstanding sportsman, who in April was convicted, much like Turner, of raping an unconscious fellow classmate when he was 19 years old in 2013. He received a mandatory minimum prison sentence of 15 to 25 years, a far cry from Turner's three months. These results are not as dramatic as we expected because on the discussions we're having, young black men are treated more severely in the United States courts. But why are they treated more severely? Why are they treated more severely in courts, in the streets, and in schools? Megan Ming Francis, she did a TED talk titled Let's Get to the Root of Racial Injustice and discusses how black people are seen as threats first and citizens second. In addition, Daniel P. Mears and his colleagues authored Offending and Racial Ethnic Disparities in Criminal Justice, a conceptual framework for guiding theory and research informing policies. It takes this idea a step further with the theory of malevolent discrimination. For example, court intake officers may view the minority youth somehow as more criminal and less amendable to rehabilitation. In turn, the officers may be more likely to recommend the court that minority youth be placed on probation. They're being viewed as potential threats. Their lives and sentences are being judged on future potential threats on crimes they haven't even committed. The logic is that minorities may engage both in more crime and in more types of crime that could be anticipated to result in arrest, pretrial detention, conviction, and incarceration. But the truth is that blacks and Latinos, or people of color for that matter, aren't more prone to committing crimes. In fact, studies have shown that they commit less crime, but because of their over-policing, they're arrested at higher rates. What is over-policing? It's the act of pumping in police officers to communities with high minority populations. This, however, is not just relevant for neighborhoods, but schools as well. The way in which we perceive our students, particularly our already marginalized, disenfranchised, and valuable and vulnerable students, must be reconfigured to address their humanity and personhood. This lack of seeing black and brown students as worthy of such consideration is at the core of the school-to-prison pipeline agenda. They need to be seen as students and individuals first. Back to zero-tolerance policies and a discussion of intersectionality in the school-to-prison pipeline. As harsh penalties for minor misbehavior become more pervasive, schools increasingly execute suspensions and expulsions. The lack of due process is particularly acute for students with special needs, who are disproportionately represented in the pipeline despite the heightened protections afforded to them under law. As a matter of fact, this problem is so pervasive that according to the American Civil Liberties Union, otherwise known as ACLU, many of these children have learning disabilities or histories of poverty, abuse, or neglect, and would benefit from additional education and counseling services. 
Instead, they are isolated, punished, and pushed out of school. Zero-tolerance policies criminalize minor infractions of school rules. While cops in school lead to students being criminalized for behavior that should be handled inside the school system by school counselors. Students of color are especially vulnerable to push-out trends and the discriminatory application of discipline. Once a child becomes entangled in the criminal justice system, it becomes very difficult for them to come out. And even when they do, it is with the additional further scars. In fact, the impact of zero-tolerance policies that once suspended or expelled, data shows that students are less likely to complete high school, more than twice as likely to be arrested while on forced to leave from school, and more likely to be in contact with the juvenile justice system during the year that follows that leave. Other research shows that students who do not complete high school are more likely to be incarcerated. Now let's turn our attention to how SROs facilitate the pipeline. In addition to adopting harsher zero-tolerance policies, most schools across the country now have police present on campus on a daily basis, and most states require educators to report student misbehavior to law enforcement. The presence of SROs on campus means that students have contact with law enforcement from a young age. Though their intended purpose is to protect students and ensure safety on school campuses, in many instances, the police handling of disciplinary issues escalates from minor, non-violent infractions into violent criminal incidents that have negative impacts on students. The presence of SROs on campus causes law enforcement agencies to learn of more crimes and increases the likelihood of arrests for those crimes among children under the age of 15. Christopher A. Mallett, a legal scholar and expert on the school-to-prison pipeline, reviewed evidence of the pipeline's existence and in his research to work, the school-to-prison pipeline, disproportionate impact on vulnerable children and adolescents, and concluded that the increased use of zero-tolerance policies and police in the schools has exponentially increased arrest and referrals to the juvenile courts. Once they have made contact with the criminal justice system, data show that students are unlikely to graduate high school. Sociologist Victor Rios found that just in his studies of the effects of policing on the lives of black and Latino boys in the San Francisco Bay Area. In his first book, Punished, Policing the Lives of Black and Latino Boys, Reels revealed through an in-depth interviews and ethnographic observations how increased surveillance and attempts at controlling at-risk or deviant youth ultimately fostered the very criminal behavior they were intended to prevent. In the social context, in which schools and institutions label deviant youth as bad or criminal and in doing so strip them of dignity, fail to acknowledge their struggles and do not treat them with respect, rebellion and criminality are acts of resistance. According to Rios, then it is the social institutions and their authorities that do the work of criminalizing youth. If this sounds oddly similar, it should because these are parallel descriptions of what it's like to be incarcerated. Facts are, black students face harsher punishments and higher rates of suspension and expulsion. 
Let's talk about the percentages of race groups in the U.S. population compared to those that are in prison. While black people make up 13% of the total U.S. population, they comprise of the greatest percentage of people in prisons and jails, 40%. Latinos are also overrepresented in prisons and jails, but by far less. While they comprise 16% of the U.S. population, they represent 19% of those in prison. In contrast, white people make up just 39% of the incarcerated population, despite the fact that they are the majority race in the United States, comprising 64% of the national population. We've begun to establish the link between schools and education and the prison industrial complex in the criminal justice system. Let's further that understanding. A study on school punishments found that the disparity in greatest among non-serious offenses, like cell phone use, violations of dress code, a subjectivity-defined offense like being disrupted or displaying affection. Black first-time offenders in these categories are suspended at rates that are double or more than those for white first-time offenders. According to the United States Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights, about 5% of white students have been suspended during their schooling experience, compared with 16% of black students. This means that black students are more than three times as likely to be suspended than their white peers. Though they comprise just 16% of the total enrollment of public school students, Black students comprise 32% of in-school suspensions and 33% of out-of-school suspensions. Troubling information? Yes. Surprising? No. This disparity begins as early as preschool. Nearly half of all preschool students suspended are Black, though they represent just 18% of total preschool enrollment. Among this population, students with disabilities are even more likely to experience exclusionary discipline. Research shows that more than one out of four boys of color with disabilities and nearly one in five girls of color with disabilities receive an out-of-school suspension. Meanwhile, research shows that white students who express behavioral issues in school are more likely to be treated with medicine, which reduces their chances of ending up in jail or prison after acting out in school. students face higher rates of school-related arrest and removal from school systems. Given that there is a connection between the experience of suspensions and engagements with the criminal justice system, and given that racial bias within education among police is well documented, it is no surprise that Black and Latino students compromise 70% of those who face referral to law enforcement or school-related arrest. Once they are in contact with the criminal justice system, as the statistics on the school-to-prison pipeline cited previously, demonstrate that students are far less likely to complete high school. Those that do may do so in alternative schools for students labeled as juvenile delinquents, many of which are unaccredited and offer lower quality education than they would receive in public schools. Others who are placed in juvenile detention centers or prisons may receive no education resources at all. The racism embedded in the school-to-prison pipeline is a significant factor in producing the reality that Black and Latino students are far less likely than their white peers to complete high school, and that Black and Latinx people are much more likely than white people to end up in jail or prison. With all of these data show us 
that not only is the school to prison pipeline very real, but also it is fueled by racial bias and produces racist outcomes that cause great harm to the lives, families, and communities of people of color across the United States. Finally, let's talk about possible solutions. What can we do as members of the community, as future educators, as parents, as students? For one, the money we spend on beefing up school safety and the criminal justice system, which we have established is deeply broken and was never meant to help black and brown people, needs to be put into hiring more support staff. Schools need more social workers, guidance counselors, psychologists. Schools need more teachers and administrators from the neighborhoods from which the students live in. Teachers and administrators that are qualified and trained to deal with the situations that are out of the quote-unquote norm. There should also be the implementation of classes specifically about race in society as a way of creating a safe space for students of all age groups to talk about how they view race. There should be an increase in funding for education institutions, more than that of the police. Breaking contracts between school districts and police departments in order to no longer have SROs in the hallways. Hence, the feeling of being watched over and policed should be replaced with the feeling of a learning environment. Reviewing and rewriting zero tolerance policies, because for the most part, they are just not working in favor of the students. Lastly, Treating students as such instead of criminals and increasing the number of counselors, therapists, psychologists, and social workers in underfunded schools. What can you do on your behalf to change the school to prison pipeline? Thank you for joining me today as we discussed this topic. <laughs>